0: It's It's Nick here, and you're listening to CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Husaynich people.
1: Hi there, you're listening to You in the Ring on CFUV 101.9 FM. My name is Dominique, and I'll be your host. In this episode, You in the Ring special correspondent Dylan Hall speaks with Dr. James Rowe about the divest movement at UVic, as well as his research into mindfulness and social change. James Rowe's interdisciplinary research program is motivated by a desire to understand and strengthen social movements working towards social and ecological justice. His research aims to improve the internal function of social movements so that they can better overcome external constraints, such as the concentrated economic power of elites and more effectively address pressing challenges like climate change, white supremacy, settler colonialism, heterosexism, and economic inequality. Dr. Rowe is a well-respected professor at UVic with his most well-known class being mindfulness, sustainability, and social change. He is currently writing a book called Radical Mindfulness and has written many articles, both academically and publicly. Without further ado, I'll let Dr. Rowe and Dylan take it away. Hello, James.
0: I'm really looking forward to this interview. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today.
2: My pleasure. Nice to be with you.
0: I want to start by learning a bit about you then focus in on the recent but long struggled for decision to divest a quarter billion dollars from UVic's working capital fund. And lastly, I want to finish with a broader look at your research in mindfulness and strengthening social movements and how it can benefit anyone, uh, especially students who are listening right now. So, first. Um, how did you come to be here at the University of Victoria studying what you are today? Yeah,
2: thanks for the question. I actually did my undergrad degree at the University of Victoria in the late 90s, started here in 1996 and actually came out to to do marketing. I wanted to study marketing um, because I saw it as a way that you could be um, creative but still make lots of Benjamins. Um And I soon got uh sort of disabused of that path, uh, mostly because I was doing very poorly in my pre commerce classes. I hated them and so just wasn't performing well uh, and happened to do a lot better in my political science and and uh, philosophy classes and so that sort of ended up being the path that i that I tread um but uh, yeah, I went to did grad school, University of California, but because I had my experience here at UVic uh, and I loved uh, the city and the and the university and I had relationships here, it made sense for me while I was writing up my dissertation to come back. And um, actually I worked in the uh, library when I came back because I had worked in the library as an undergrad. And, and, and then from there I started teaching sessionally. And then from there, um got a faculty job. It was a bit of a sort of Horatio Alger story where I went from shelving books to uh to teaching classes. But um uh but yeah, yeah, I, I loved my time here as an undergrad. And so it's a real pleasure to be here in this capacity now. Although I sometimes walk past professors who I got bees in their classes and and I feel like uh, an imposter now, but uh but that's one of the hazards of teaching where you studied.
0: And then you traveled and or went elsewhere and came back?
2: Yeah yeah so I went to University of California Santa Cruz for my MA and PhD and then but then ended up back here in 2007 writing up my dissertation and haven't left since.
0: So how about divestment? What is the divestment movement and how long have you personally been working on it?
2: Yeah, so the divestment movement is an effort to target institutional investors such as universities, encouraging them to pull their money out of fossil fuel companies in an effort to culturally marginalize the industry, which we see as the largest obstruction to needed action on climate change. And the sort of theory of change is that if that industry can be sufficiently Uh, weakened or marginalized, then politicians will have more room to pass the kind of legislation we need to uh, move forward in a climate-sane way. Uh, The movement has been alive at UVic for the last eight years, and I uh, came to participate when two students, Peter Gibbs and Kelsey Meck, uh, approached myself and other faculty members and encouraged us to join students and get involved and their basic sales pitch was that you know you stand up in front of classes telling us the importance of climate action while your pension fund is invested and the endowment fund of the university is invested in the very companies um, that you're criticizing in your lecture. And so you're you're actually, in a de facto way, profiting from the very problem that you're criticizing. So shouldn't you rectify that situation? And I thought to myself, yes, I should. <laughs> and so uh, got involved.
0: Awesome. Thanks for naming some names and speaking about the students who are involved too. I know that it's a, a large network of people who have been involved and regrettably, we can't interview everybody. So... Thank you for speaking to that. Um, And now that large network of people has accomplished something, divestment at UVic. According to an article in the Times Colonist, the University of Victoria has fully divested its quarter billion dollar working capital fund away from fossil fuel investments. And the school announced on February 2nd that it had also moved 80 million dollars from the 256 million dollar capital fund into a short-term bond focused on low carbon investments. Can you help me unpack this? What are the meaningful details of this decision?
2: Yeah, so, so it's great news from our perspective. The university has two major funds. They have their endowment fund, which is around 440 million. And then they have this working capital fund that you just referenced at around 250 million. And so they have now fully divested that working capital fund. So that's kind of for us, the most important part of the announcement, but also as you suggested, they are redirecting some of their funds towards, um, yeah, low carbon investments and, and other impact investing, social good investments, socially good investments. And so it's great news, but the key takeaway is that they have fully divested. There are no more fossil fuel investments in that working capital fund. And so we see that as a crucial step. It's our first major breakthrough after eight years, really, in our engagements with the administration. And we see it as a first step towards now divesting the endowment fund, which is the, um, the sort of next step that we want to see them to take. And how big is the endowment fund? Uh, it's 440 million. So almost double the size of the working capital fund.
0: Okay, wow. And so after eight years of, of working for this, why now? Why did the Board of Governors decide to invest now?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, we don't know exactly. Like it's a, uh, you know, kind of complex causation. You know, there isn't a singular reason. I think partly it's again, an accumulation of effort over the last eight years that set the conditions for this to happen. But then some key changes that, that, that uh, happened are that we do have a new president who started in November who is a lot more interested in this file than our previous president, Jamie Castles. And so Kevin Hall um, has been, I think, helpful in this this regard. And so that's really important. And then another piece is that we did research showing uh, last year, showing how that there's actually connections on the, the, the board of governors and the other board that governs the endowment fund with the fossil fuel industry itself. And we wanted to act on that research by populating the Board of Governors with more supporters of divestment. And so we made sure to get supportive students elected and supportive faculty elected. And then we got some luck that the staff member who got voted on uh, happens to be a supporter of divestment. Uh, And then we've actually gotten to the point now where there's a majority of support for divestment among those who sit around the board of governing table. And so that's a change that's also happened so that now we've got sort of the primary governing body and the president who uh, at least are not opposed to divestment, even if Hall might, I can't, I can't claim him as an ardent supporter, but he's not opposed and he's interested in definitely seeing the university shrink their uh, fossil fuel investments and and be more uh, socially responsible investors. And so those are some of the major changes that I think led led to this. Actually, the last thing I'll say that was a bit more sort of in the weeds, but another factor is just that there's more and more investment products coming onto the market that allow institutions to invest large amounts of money, make good returns while avoiding fossil fuels. And so part of the story is that just a new uh, product showed up on the investment market that our treasurer liked. And and so some of his hesitancy about being able to still make returns moving forward were quelled by this new product. And so they went for it. And so that was part of it, too.
0: Right. Very interesting. So in trying to establish some social change or for anyone at other universities thinking about making change. um reaching out to and connecting with with very real people and people in positions of power and connecting with them was a key part of this.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think for us, you know, there's no there's no uh, perfect blueprint for successful divestment campaigns, but I do think some key features are strong relationships between faculty and students, which has been a key feature of the campaign since its beginning here at UVic and then so solidarity with students and faculty um but then, yeah, like, you know, do the power analysis and see if there's connections with the industry and your institution and, and then get your people around the table because we can shout and scream as much as we want from the outside, which is actually very important and valuable and has been part of the success. But at the end of the day, to get the actual concrete victory, you need supporters around the, the table on the inside. And, and that's what
0: happened. Fascinating. Um, in terms of that Other element of the decision and the new products coming on the market, it leads me to wonder about the arguments for divestment. And I've heard arguments for it being like a a really just the right thing to do. And also that it makes sense because the fossil fuel industry is becoming a much riskier investment. And I'm curious which argument you used, if, if both of those are ones you used, if more than those are ones you used, and, and what do you think is the most influential when it comes to boards of governors?
2: Yeah, I know that's a great question. Um, you know the way it gets talked about within the movement is that there's the moral argument, which is that if it's wrong to wreck the planet, then it's wrong to profit from that wreckage. And so, you know, that's the sort of basic moral calculus that's animated divest activists themselves. But then there's also the financial argument that you pointed out which is that um, you know if we are going to avoid 1.5 degree warming then huge amounts of oil and gas reserves have to stay in the ground and those reserves are already factored into the share prices of those companies which means that when either legislation gets passed to avoid that warming or technological advancement reaches to the point where it's just more cost competitive to go with alternatives huge amounts of reserves aren't going to get extracted and burned and huge amounts of value in those companies are going to go down. And we've already seen the last two years, fossil fuel companies have been the worst performing sectors on the stock market, outperformed by wind and solar. And so they're already a losing investment before um, the sort of stranded asset or carbon bubble concern really even comes home to roost. And so when it comes to convincing uh, institutional investors, the moral argument doesn't get you very far. Uh, It's the financial argument that ultimately wins the day because they have a responsibility, sometimes legally. Uh, to ensure uh, returns for their fund. And so when you can demonstrate that it's actually the financially prudent choice, that helps a lot. And so I'd almost say that the moral argument helps build the movement because students don't care if the endowment fund has like a 6% return versus a 4% return, whatever. Like that's not gonna build a social, you can't build a social movement around, let's save our endowment fund money, you know? Uh, there needs to be more outrage. That's what sort of helps build movements. So the moral argument sort of helps, has helped nurture and nourish and strengthen and build the movement. But when it actually comes to sealing the deal at different institutions, such as UVic or UBC that also divested recently, it's the financial argument that's most effective.
0: In terms of the broader picture of divestment and the climate movement and the purpose of divestment, I think that many people assume that if you divest, you're pulling the money out of a company and trying to affect its bottom line by getting enough people to do so. However, anybody, once you've pulled that money, can purchase those stocks, and there's a whole market for sin-vesting, as it's called. Um, so does divestment make a financial difference, or is it about culture and politics? Like, what is the goal?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um... Since the beginning, the priority has been placed on uh the sort of cultural plank versus more of of causing genuine financial harm and sort of the theory is that again, if you can culturally marginalize the industry uh, through pulling in like big name institutions pulling their funds out, that helps to turn the industry into a pariah in the way that tobacco has been turned into a pariah and then that creates again more space for policymakers to pass policies that run counter to the fossil fuel industry. And we've already started to see this with the, the new Biden administration where he's promised to cut subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. It's also said that you know while other governments have given handouts to big oil, that's no longer how things will roll in Washington. And so I think some of that space has been created through movements like, like divestment. And so that said, once that space is created, where uh, governments are freer to legislate, then that actually will have a material impact on on those companies. It just so happens though, that I'd actually say that the investment movement has had more financial impact than I anticipated, even before that legislation has come to pass, because it hasn't come to pass fully yet at all. Um, But still, I think the investment movement has played a key role in hampering the bottom lines of, of these companies. And it's basically just shaken confidence In uh, markets and you know there's a a saying that I like that um, the stock market is basically an indicator of rich people's feelings but the fact that there's all these um, high-powered institutions whether it's the sovereign wealth fund in 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 Norway or, or or the University of California a massive public institution pulling out it's shaken some investor confidence in um, in the industry. And that has actually had an impact on the bottom line. There's actually been research done showing how in the immediate aftermath of major divestment announcements, uh, the stock price goes down for, for fossil fuel companies. And so they're actually, you know, it, it, at this point, it's sort of more correlative than causative, but, but there's enough of that that's happened that suggests that uh, these decisions actually do materially harm um, the industry. So, and we're at the point now where, you know, there's a, it went viral last year where Jim Kramer from, uh, he's a financial analyst on CNBC, basically, well, he literally argued that we're in the death knell phase of, of fossil fuel companies. And part of the reason is because of the divestment movement and the way that they've helped to turn fossil fuels into the new tobacco where investment managers don't want to touch it because it's um, uh, seen as toxic. And and a potential flashpoint for their beneficiaries, and so uh, people are moving away from it, which has helped lower the price. Which then has the effect of having other people move away because less money is being made from it. So, um, so it's it's both uh, a sort of cultural marginalization strategy, but it's actually had more financial impact than I even anticipated when I joined the movement in 2013.
0: Right. Yeah, it's had more impact than I anticipated as well watching it for a while now I'm just looking up here how much has actually been divested globally and it says that over 14.56 trillion dollars has been divested and it's very interesting that the majority of that about 50 percent of that well 34 percent is faith-based organizations and then 15 percent is educational so the two of them make up 50 percent so there's like this way that the moral case that a faith based organization might first also incorporate into their decision making maybe triggers that spiral that makes those investments less de- desirable and less financially feasible and hopefully continues to spiral
2: yeah, no, I think that's a really good point and it it um yeah there's a way that the moral argument has sort of become the financial argument or it's or it's helped shape and accelerate the financial argument. And so I think the two have worked worked together in that regard in ways that you nicely articulated.
0: Do you think that divesting from fossil fuels addresses the problem of climate change or or that it's enough in addressing the problem of climate change or is it one tactic in a much broader struggle?
2: Yeah, it's just one tactic. Like the movement's been very clear from the get-go that divestment alone is insufficient for dealing with the scale of the problem. And the, I'm embarrassed to admit that the original Star Wars trilogy have shaped my moral universe more than I'd, I'd like to admit. But there's a, a scene in The Empire Strikes Back that clarifies for me the role that divestment plays in the climate justice wars. And it's when the rebel alliance are trying to get off the ice planet of Hoth and they deploy what they refer to as the Ion Cannon, which stuns the Empire's star destroyers, which allows for the rebels to get away, to fight another day. So the Ion Cannon doesn't destroy the evil Empire. It simply stuns them for a moment and creates space for the rebels to um, to build their case. And basically, I think the divestment is kind of the Ion Cannon um, for, for, for for the climate movement. It sort of stuns the industry. Uh, It's created the space needed for, you know, all of a sudden um, conversation around the Green New Deal, which has actually been around for a long time, has really accelerated uh, in the wake of the divestment movement. And it's not surprising that The the major social movement pushing the Green New Deal in, in the United States, the Sunrise Movement, is led by two graduates of the fossil fuel divestment movement. There's a sort of a clear linkage between, like, okay, we weaken the industry and then we pursue the ambitious transformative policy program that we need, which is the Green New Deal. And, you know, we're not seeing it instantiated in policy in Canada or the US right now. That said, you know, the Biden administration, or when he was running, I should say, he he didn't use the name Green New Deal because it's been kind of marred by the right-wing attack machine, but um, but he calls it a clean energy revolution and has pledged trillions of dollars uh, on on public investments in energy transition, which is at the heart of what the Green New Deal is. And at the end of this month, next week, we're going to hear the first details of, of his infrastructure plan, which will actually kind of be uh, his version of the Green New Deal. And so I actually think that the divestment movement has done its job where it's made enough space for the kind of transformational policymaking we need uh, to actually address the challenge. Now, Biden's plan still isn't enough. We still need better, but it's, it's a hell of a lot better than we were well, when we had Trump, who didn't even believe in climate change. And so I actually feel pretty hopeful on the climate politics front right now. And I think divestment has played, played a really important role in creating the conditions for that shift.
0: So what are the next steps for the Rebels and the Iowan Cannon? What are you striving for now and how are you calling for the university to respectfully invest in the future that students are inheriting or what else are you working towards?
2: Yeah so you know the the next task is to get them to pursue full divestment and so that's getting the endowment fund to also divest and I'll, you know, knock on wood as I say this or knock on my uh, UVic laminate desk as I say this. But um, I think that within the year, I think we'll accomplish that. You know, we'll, we'll see. But um, but yeah, that's the short-term goal is to to get them to... to we've had this, this victory this year, but we want the full enchilada. Otherwise, uh, it is kind of just window dressing. And so um, we want to push for that. And then there's been a lot of movement and momentum built up around this, question of divestment. And so once we're successful, <clears throat> it begs the question of what next? And I think that has to be a democratic sort of decision-making process where there's all this capacity that's been built up on cap- campus, all these relationships. What do we want to mobilize that energy towards? I have some of my own ideas, but but I think it has to be a democratic process because part of the reason divestment has been so successful is it's been able to magnetize people's time, energy, and attention and creating a social movement is, is no small feat. And there's a lot of just randomness and chance in terms of that. And to be honest with you, I wasn't that impressed with the divest strategy back in 2012 when it first emerged and I wasn't sure it would really go anywhere, but it just really captured people's imagination. And so that's what helped turn it into a global movement. Um, and so I think for whatever we pick here at UVic, whether it's linked to global trends or not, we need to pick something that, that's really gonna be able to attract energy and attention.
0: And that is, I I wish you so much luck in doing that and thinking of the broader future that I am inheriting and all of your students are inheriting and you are inheriting and the struggle of, of, I guess, showing up to that and thinking about that all the time and trying to reckon with one's own scale within the size of an institution like the University of Victoria, let alone within a nation state, let alone on the planet. Um, I thought we could steer our conversation toward another area of your research. You are currently working on the book Radical Mindfulness, inquiring into the root causes of social and ecological injustice and the value of mindfulness in social movements. You also teach a class on mindfulness, sustainability, and social change. So. If you don't mind, can you tell us a bit about this project, how you came to it, and what it is about? Yeah, for sure. Um,
2: so, you know, for me, it comes out of a, uh, just a deep questioning that started for me at UVic, where, you know, I really had a, a, a transformative experience as an undergrad here that sort of helped nurture my commitment to what can happen in, in the classroom where like i sort of almost had like akin to like a conversion experience you know where i had my eyes open to some of the real injustices in the world and in some respects it's it's um a condemnation of my public school k through 12 education that i i kind of managed to miss all of this until arriving uh at university in terms of structural injustices along the axes of of race class and and gender it just wasn't prioritized in my previous education and and so um and so, you know, upon better learning, and then, you know, as, as a white um, male, like my lived experience, middle-class male, my lived experience was one of privilege. And so I just hadn't, hadn't, in an embodied way, had to encounter with some of these injustices. And so upon learning about them uh, in the in university context, it, it just sort of wear away at me around, like, why does this keep happening? And, you know, like, Are there like root causes maybe that lead to the persistence of these injustices along these different axes? And, and, you know, there's there's a parable that I've come to learn that I really like. I'll tell it really quickly of, you know, there's this lady uh, working on the, in the fields in her village and there's a river that streams by the fields. And and one day as she's working, she notices um, children that are drowning in the river. And she of course runs out to pull them out. Uh, and, as she 's doing so, she realizes this is more than she can handle by herself, and so she calls for the village they create a human chain they 're pulling all of these kids out of the river to safety, which is such vital work and as they 're doing that, two people break away from the chain the human chain and start start you know running away and, and people ask after them, like, "How can you possibly leave? We have to get all these kids out of the river and their answer is well we 're running upstream to figure out who 's throwing the damn kids in the first place so that we can stop this and so For me, like, I I think it's really important. Of course, we have to sort of get the proverbial children out of the river, we have to deal with these uh injustices in the here and now. But one thing that can happen at universities is it's an opportunity for us to it can happen elsewhere too. But it's one site where we can uh we have the space and time to kind of walk upstream and ask those questions about like why do these injustices keep happening. And so, as an undergrad here, that that kind of questioning process. Got launched for me, and then you know the answer that I came upon, uh, both in my undergrad studies and then in my grad studies, is one that might seem a bit counterintuitive to people, but it's that uh, we as as human animals uh, very easily feel quite small and belittled in the face of our mortality, of our finite existence and can really easily compensate for those feelings of smallness by pursuing aggrandizement, uh, by pursuing dominance over the more-than-human world and over each other as a way of making ourselves feel better for the smallness that we feel in the face of uh, existential vastness that will one day gobble us up with very little say on our part. And so I think it's noteworthy that the philosopher Hegel who penned the master-slave dialectic that is central to Marxist philosophy and and informed Franz Fanon's work and some anti-colonial work. For Hegel, he's got this zinger uh, in the Phenomenology of Spirit where he says, death is the absolute master, which is to suggest that death is, from a Euro-American perspective, like the ultimate oppressor. And we're sort of slaves in the face of that. I don't think that's true, uh, but that's sort of how Hegel conceived it, which I think is actually indicative of the Euro-American tradition, perceives death in that way. And if you feel enslaved in the face of our human finitude, then I understand why we seek freedom from that servitude, sometimes in very unwise ways, by imposing our control, our dominance on other people and the natural world, as a way of, again, trying to fantastically secure our freedom from uh, that ultimate master. And so if that argument, um, you know, if that's right at all, then it suggests that uh, attending to some of those existential fears that we might have in the face of mortality actually becomes central to politics, not just, you know, a sort of peripheral spiritual concern. Um, And so that's what led me to mind-body practices such as meditation, um, in that these are practices that were designed 2,000 years ago to help humanity face impermanence and metabolize the reality of impermanence and to actually accept it and to actually be able to feel love and gratitude for this life that we've been gifted, even though it ends In in um, in death, and so for me, uh, the work that I'm doing in this book, it's it's kind of a work of recovery of of showing that look in all these different philosophical traditions, whether it's Buddhism or in a number of indigenous uh, uh, communities and practices, uh, also within Euro American existentialism thinkers such as Nietzsche and then uh, Black existentialism thinkers such as Baldwin, we see versions of this argument that keeps getting forgotten because people don't want to face the reality of death. And so this book is an effort in recovery. And the sort of political implication of the argument is that we need to get a lot more serious politically about transforming some of our embodied fears and traumas. And mind-body practices play a really important role in that. Uh, and, And so I'm interested in how social movements that are targeting structural injustices can begin to more deeply incorporate mind-body practices into their important work. I'm not trying to say that we, sh- we can just meditate our way to peace and justice. Uh, it won't happen. But I do think that if these practices are embedded within movements already doing that structural work, I think that they'll be much more successful in their efforts to walk upstream and actually address the root causes of who's throwing the darn children in the river in, in the first place.
0: I have so many things I could ask you and I will keep it simple for myself and ponder those more and start by asking you how your students have responded to learning about these things and these ideas in your class.
2: Yeah, I I think that the response has been good. Um, you know, the the class uh, is always oversubscribed, so that's a good sign. I'm not uh, turning people, or I actually am having to turn people away, so that, that's, that's you know, I guess a good sign that there's people who are interested in it. Um, yeah, I think the response has been good. Um, what's fun about the class is that we get to practice these different, some different mind-body practices, but we also have political action projects where they get to go out and, and make some mischief in, in the world as well. And and I think that that's a really good mix, and it's an opportunity for them to see how some of these practices can support some of the political work that they're either already engaged in or that they engage in in the context of of the class. And so, yeah, there's been some really cool projects that students have undertaken. Um, one group held a meditation marathon uh, last year that raised close to two grand for uh, Raven's Trust, that that raises money for Indigenous legal defense, and so. Um, so you know, people got to have a day of 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 meditation and and gaining self knowledge, and then the funds gained, imported, uh, supported really important structural uh, work. Um, there's a group right now that's got a, a petition getting lots of media attention, trying to change the name of Trutch Street in Victoria because of Joseph Trutch's racist uh, history and his efforts to, as land commissioner in BC, to um, Diminish reserve size and and many of his racist statements that informed his efforts to um, dispossess indigenous people and so lots of cool projects have come out of the class that have i think concretely made some important changes locally and so so that's really good um, and then yeah the students the students experience i think has been good one of the nicest um phrases that i've heard from one student is that for her speaking specifically to the mindfulness practices it allowed her to feel feelings she didn't know that she could feel. And I thought that that was a particularly poignant uh, account of what uh, mindfulness can, can offer us. There's a a level of embodied freedom and capacity that can be cultivated through these practices that until you do it, you don't really have experience with it. And so I was heartened to hear that, um, to hear that feedback. Um, And then I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, we, we, I'm asking these young people to reckon with some big topics, not just politically, but existentially around the realities of death. (laughs) And we actually do a, a near death visualization near the beginning of class. That's quite an intense activity. Uh, But, you know, again, knock on my laminate here, but up until now, it seems to have had its effect where um, it, it, I think it's been for some students anyways, like a, kind of transformative experience where it helps to shoot things into perspective, what matters in our lives, what doesn't. And that's kind of what finitude can do for us. It can actually be a support for us, not just a drag. It encourages us to savor uh, each moment of our lives and to really prioritize what matters, what relationships matter, what issues matter, what really matters. Like, Does that Tweet getting lots of retweets really matter, uh, or is it that conversation with your grandmother that, that, that matters, you know? And so, um, I think that the different practices we engage in the class help with some values clarification, and that's some of the feedback I've, I've received. But, um, yeah, it's I guess uncomfortable talking about the successes of one's class, but, but I, I do think it's been a, a success. I wonder,
0: there's something coming up for me in terms of the combination of what we were talking about earlier and movements and climate change and people who are really striving for striving for change and at the same time perhaps not having those conversations in the movements and in and and those spaces as somebody who's been in those spaces can become very fraught and very tense because there's so much that we want to do and that feeling of maybe not having the power to do it. I guess what I'm asking is, do you see a relationship between turning to face mortality and turning to face death and emotionally orienting to the possibility that it's too late to prevent runaway climate change or that that we in like constantly striving to do something that part of that is coming out of this desire to not die and to not fail. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I love that question. Um, yeah. Cause even just look at the, the phrase sustainability, you know, like it's, it's kind of a bid for permanence at some level, like to sustain <laughs> into the future. Uh, so I do think that there's some neuroses that shape the environmental movement, uh, itself. But you know, I think it 's a bit paradoxical, but I like to think of it this way, and this actually gives me real hope and respite, and the readers or the listeners I should say might might think otherwise but But I think about it that that you know I visualize us um, totally succeeding in drawing down emissions, uh, we sort of win the climate change battle, and let 's even say that along the way make significant gains in terms of racial equity and gender equity and and income inequality, all these great things, you know. And then a meteorite hits the earth, uh, which has happened, you know, in, in our in our planetary history, you know. And so like we can still win and and these like massive ruptures can happen, or or pick another, like, you know, uh say two two hundred, four hundred, five hundred years out, a a mini ice age just happens uh that isn't so anthropogenically rooted because many ice ages have happened lots uh without human interference that again makes life quite challenging for the human animal and so there's these these changes that are that are just part of earthly existence and i think that you know if, if for those of us in the environmental movement that make a a point of of sort of wanting to nurture relationships with the more than human world and to sort of love the earth we have to be willing to love it in its totality and its fullness which includes death and can include destruction and can even include our own destruction through um, interventions of not of our making, whether it's the asteroid uh, or not. And so, it's, it's just to say that there's just a lot of uncertainty that's part of this rich and wonderful life that we inhabit on this planet. And I think myself that accepting the our own inevitable deaths, but then also accepting that. Societies as we know them now will also die, whether it's due to our own stupidity, or I should say, capitalism stupidity. I, there's lots of humans who are doing great work, but maybe more capitalism stupidity. Um, but you know, whether it's that or or it's other forces that you know, death and change and transformation will happen. And and for me, acknowledging and facing that actually makes me, I think, a better fighter for um, for sanity, for climate sanity, for, for preserving the Holocene, which is this amazing window that, uh, that the earth has provided for the human animal to and other animals to flourish in. And, and we are so foolish to deny the great privilege of living in the Holocene. And we should fight like hell to prolong it as long as we can. But paradoxically, I actually think that facing the possibility of the end of the Holocene, even without human misconduct, I think makes us better fighters because it means that we're actually fully loving the Earth that we're striving to uh, regain good relationships with, because this Earth has been shaped by meteorites uh, hitting it and and other cosmic interventions, and and so I think that it's just more real and honest to. Um, To face those things, doesn't say we have to uh, want them or ask for them to happen, but I think that they're a part of life that we have to accept. And I think paradoxically that acceptance makes us more able to um, love and accept uh, the world that we're fighting for and thus be
0: better fighters for it. And in arguing for that and and in making that point, um, and the point that you made earlier that a fear of death Plays a primary role in the recurrence of unjust social relations, and um, as I saw in an article that you wrote in the hoarding of toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic that until social movements begin to start to incorporate those practices or understand those practices or have those conversations, that injustice will persist um, perhaps in between people and relationships within those movements and I'm wondering. I guess, two-part question. One, what practices do we have and and do you have or do you prefer in your own teaching and life to alleviate our existential fears or come to reckon with them? And secondly, have you tried using those in social movements? Have you had success? Have you seen ways that that has worked well or not?
2: Yeah, so you know, mind-body practices like meditation and and yoga and and otherwise, they're already getting taken up within social movement contexts. And so I remember doing research on Occupy Wall Street and reading about the daily meditations that were held um, in Zuccotti Park. And I actually went down to New York to interview activists because I had sort of my own thoughts around why it's important to integrate these practices into movements. And I wanted to know if what I thought was thinking was similar to theirs, and 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 I learned that they weren't. They had different reasons, sort of more pragmatic reasons for why they saw these practices as being a nurturing of of social movement success. And and I, I agree with the reasons that they share as well. I think those are also important in terms of just being able to um, be less defensive, and that can support working across political differences. Uh, a number of different pragmatic reasons why these practices can can nurture. Nurture better movements. But for me, it does bring a lot of hope that the practices are already getting integrated in a significant way. You take the organization Stand.Earth, uh, they do a 12 minute meditation before every staff meeting uh, because, based on the premise that if, if we take a little time to connect with ourselves, we'll actually be much better positioned to connect genuinely with other people. If we can be gentle with ourselves, we'll be gentle with other people. Uh, and so the practices are already getting taken up in a really significant way. And so that's the good news. And then my effort with this, this book is to say, awesome, this integration is already happening, but I think we need to maybe tweak some of these integrations to address some of these deeper fears and anxieties that can lead to the replication of injustice within movements and also play a role in actually shaping some of these structures that cause us such strife in the first place. And really I've seen the book as a, a conversation starter I myself practice sitting meditation and, and find it really valuable, but, but I'm not a, a Buddhist teacher uh, and, you know, I'm not a, a maestro at crafting ritual or ceremony. Uh, I'm, I'm wanting to get the conversation started. And then I know that people engaged in movements who are already taking up these practices uh, are much better positioned than I to sort out what some of the tweaks or, or new practices might look like uh, to support a cultural change where we start within movements themselves in helping to nourish um, a deeper affirmation of earthly life, including death, as a precondition to that cultural affirmation kind of pouring out into the wider into the wider world. But I wanted to get a conversation started. I don't have all the answers in terms of what these different practices might look like, um, but I wanted to start the conversation so that there's more people sitting around the table thinking about this stuff, and, and being able to answer that question that you just asked about you know, what might the practical deployment, what specific practices, um, what they might look like.
0: Right, and it brings me to think about, I guess for those listening and for me, it has been evident throughout that for you, mindfulness, existential philosophy and politics are all deeply entwined in your being. And Yet, I guess, for people who encounter these things in the world as things that they're just starting to become interested in, they can seem quite separate. And we can often encounter things like yoga or mindfulness or different practices that have very little element of of political action or change and have become incorporated into capitalism. And I want to know what you think about that and, and yeah, how you feel about that. And I thought we should address it.
2: Yeah, totally. I'm really glad you asked that. Um, Yeah, no, I think that uh, there's a lot of ways that within what's sometimes called the mindfulness revolution right now, you know, these, these practices are co-opted and taken up within corporate contexts and otherwise as a way of, sort of promoting productivity, or more culturally, uh, they lend themselves towards a kind of neoliberal responsabilization, where if you're not, if you're too stressed out, and uh, you're not making enough money, or whatever, it's because you're not meditating enough. And if you just meditate, like the corporate CEOs of Google, or whatever else, then you too can be a captain of the universe. And, and so there's a lot of that that, that that's happening. Um, I actually was just reading a good book yesterday by Ron Purser, Beyond Mick Mindfulness: How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality, which gets to the heart of the question that you asked. And I think that that's a, a real risk and danger. And so that's why, for me, like in the class that I teach, it's mindfulness and social change. And and for me, they always have to happen uh, together. And it's those social movements that I think help provide some of the sort of values and intentions to animate those mind-body practices because you can use, well, there's even a case of, uh, of a mass shooter in, in Norway who himself was a mindfulness practitioner and talked about how he felt it improved his aim. And so, you know, intention is everything in the deployment of these practices. They can be used to accumulate more wealth on the backs of, of exploited peoples. Mindfulness can be used in that way. And it can also be used in Occupy Wall Street to target uh, those uh, financial titans. And so intention really matters. And so for me, for these practices to be successful, they have to happen guided by the values of critical or radical social movements. Otherwise, there's real danger of co-optation and individualization and actually making the world worse versus, um, versus pursuing a transformational agenda.
0: I guess on the other end of the coin, I wonder what the danger is of a social movement that doesn't embrace or understand relationships, emotions and mindful communication.
2: Yeah, I know that's a lovely nuanced question. Yeah, I think it's possible for different spiritual pursuits to enable a kind of spiritual bypassing where you're not relating to the the messiness and challenges of of the world. And so I think some of that can happen. And again, that's why for me, uh, these practices are are best done in in, um, the context of of movements pushing for structural or systemic change. Um, In terms of the, the dangers well, and, and maybe I'll even point to to the fact that, you know, the Buddhist organization that that I was part of and that I learned meditation in has been uh, racked by a scandal in the last uh, three years because of a Me Too reckoning, which a number of Buddhist organizations and, of course, Christian organizations and basically any institution that's hierarchical has been reckoning uh, with abuse of power, sexual misconduct, uh, and so when you're practicing these spiritual pursuits, whether it's yoga or, or Buddhist meditation or, or Christian prayer, without attentiveness to these structural dynamics bearing down on us and shaping our souls, then you're very likely to simply replicate or recreate some of those uh, violences within your organization, which is why structural analysis or systemic analysis is so important to be able to sort of forestall as best as possible some of those dynamics. And so. That's why I think spiritual organizations need a political analysis. But then but the second part of your question is why political organizations kind of need a spiritual practice of some kind. And and I think that, you know, for one, if we're actually going to get at some of the root causes of um, the sort of will to supremacy that shows up uh, in white supremacy, male supremacy, class supremacy, human supremacy, I think that, you know, from what I've shared earlier, we need to start um, facing some of our deep and embodied uh, fears and, and uh, traumas and and have practices for transforming them. More immediately, I, I just read a good book by Adrian Marie Brown on call-out culture within social movements. And I think there is a way ways that um, a lot of lateral violence, um, violence may be too strong of a word, but a lot of uh, lateral attacks can happen within movements that weaken them. Because we aren't tending to our wounds. We aren't tending to our hurts. And it's really easy when we feel hurt to want to hurt others as a way of coping. And unless we're making time and space to uh, heal and tend to our hurts, then we're likely to lash out to those who are in closest proximity to us. And that tends to be our allies, those who we should be working with to actually address some of the structural dynamics that have likely caused those hurts in. First place, whether it's in our lives or in our ancestral histories. And so I think that these practices can um, help cultivate uh, care uh, for self and for others within movements that will then actually strengthen them such that their animus, uh, their righteous animus and anger can be best directed outwards towards those structural forces that cause such strife versus sort of attacking each other uh, within movements,
0: uh, which happens when we don't tend to our hurts. Is there anything else that you would like to add that you would like to say to the people out there?
2: Uh, Well, yeah, this has been a lovely conversation. Thanks so much, Dylan. Um, I guess one thing I will say is that this gives me comfort and, and maybe it will for others as well. But, you know, within the sort of political left, we talk about changing the world, which is so important given the injustices arrayed Against us, but I think it's helpful to recall that in many respects, the world that we're fighting for is actually already here um, and I'm just thinking about just the fundamental richness and goodness of earthly life, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the sun that powers all of earthly life it's it's here it's here right now. We don't have to wait for the revolution to sort of feel that richness in our bodies and in amongst each other. And, and so I find it a source of sustenance that, that the world, you know, the Holocene, the glorious Holocene, honor the Holocene. It's, it's here right now. Uh, it's alive in our bodies. There's such richness coursing through our organism in any given moment. And we're able to touch, touch into that, and have it be a source of strength as we navigate the very real political challenges uh, that we're up against and again personally i think that a lot of those challenges arise from us not fully honoring the holocene and not fully honoring the totality of earthly life that sometimes includes some challenging datum such as mortality but again if i think you look deeply enough you see mortality as simply part of a generous life course that we're all part of where uh, we will give back to the earth from which we come when it does come our time to um, bid adieu.
1: I'd like to thank Dr. Rowe for being a guest on the show and for all of his mindful reflections on such important matters. If you want more information on his work, visit jameskrowe.com. This episode was produced by me, Dominique, and was co-created by special correspondent Dylan Hall. That's all for this episode. Hope to catch you next time on You in the Ring.